thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Um, if you're a guest this morning, my name's uh, Mike Bickley, and uh, I serve on staff here as, as lead pastor. And, and this morning, um, before I preach, I really sensed um, from the Lord uh, this uh, last week um, that I would need to take a moment and repent and, and apologize to you as a church for some extremely unwise comments I made last week in my sermon on Ephesians 2, where God is addressing the racism that exists in the world in the person of Jesus Christ as a solution. And during that message, I made the stupid choice to mention the types of racial slurs that were used in the ancient world and the very ones that have been used in our modern world. There's no defense for repeating those slurs at any time, in any place, for any reason. I should have mentioned that people used and still use those evil, divisive, and hostile slurs today. But using the actual terms was unwise, hurtful, and painful. What I did was ignorant, and I believe sinful. In our congregation, we have people who've been the recipient of racism, and it has dramatically harmed their lives. They're recovering from the wounds and trauma inflicted on them by racists. And by using those words, I brought back memories that created extreme pain. For this, I am deeply remorseful. I would never want to be the creator of pain for those who have been oppressed. Mentioning the racial slurs felt to some as if I was cussing for the sake of making a point. For others, it created the need to have a conversation with their children they may not have been ready to have. There was nothing of value that came from my mentioning any racial slur. There's no value that can come at any time. It just put a barrier to the call of the passage to eradicate racism that we were studying. And that's really what we should be focused on. As a church, just like Jesus, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between peoples. But instead, here we are dealing with my senseless and ignorant words. Church, for these reasons, I'm deeply sorrowful for my comments. And after much prayer and conversations with my good friend, Pastor Brooks at Macedonia Baptist, I want to repent and I want to declare and commit to never doing that again. But as encouragement, I'm also making a fresh resolve to always be a part of the solution and never a part of the problem. If I ever hear someone speak any racial slur, I'm going to address that person graciously yet boldly. And I'm going to ask them, why are you using that term? Do you know how ugly and hostile that term is? If I witness someone showing racial prejudice, I'm going to step into the situation with grace and boldness and seek to shut it down. Church, I want to ask you to forgive me. But at Pastor Brooks's insistence, I want to ask you for more. I want to ask you in joining me in turning what was my ugly behavior into something beautiful. I want to ask you to be a part of the solution in seeking to eradicate racism in our church 
in our community and in our world. I want you to join me. If you hear people using racial slurs, will you intervene? If you see racism at school or in a neighborhood or on the sidelines or at work, will you step forward graciously and boldly? Will you use it not only for an opportunity to defend the oppressed, but as an opportunity to educate the ignorant and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you join me, not just in stopping the use of racial slurs, but in eradicating racism wherever and whenever you see it? Will you join with me in continuing to work with Macedonia Baptist Church as we pursue John 17 unity and pray for racism to end in our city? Church, will you join me? I'm waiting for a response. Thank you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that it was poured out on me in Christ Jesus. And I know that your grace and your mercy can overcome my words. Lord, you know we're living in tumultuous times where animosity and hate and division are everywhere. And you've called your church to be a light among the darkness, a voice of truth among the lies, and a refuge among the storm. So Lord, use us to bring hope and help to those who are undergoing hurt and pain from the impact of racism on their hearts and in their life. Bring calm to those who are anxious and disturbed and let your very presence bring comfort and compassion to those who have weary hearts. God, empower all of us to stand against prejudice and racism wherever and whenever we see it. Through Christ our Lord, amen. So we're going to make a transition this week and the next two weeks following. We're going to kind of take a break from our study in Ephesians, and we're going to pick back up in January. And we want to spend these next two weeks really focusing on Christmas and and the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to show you a picture of the broom tree. It's a desert shrub that grows across Arabia and throughout the Judean wilderness in the Middle East. It has deep roots that allow it to stay alive in an otherwise very barren land. In the Bible, such desert shrubs as the broom tree appear frequently, especially along moments of despair. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 120, the psalmist connects the presence of a broom tree as identifying with mourning, distress, and punishment. I don't know how familiar all of you are with your Bibles, but you know I read through the Bible every year, and, and I revisited uh, this year the story in 1 Kings 18 of when Elijah is in the conflict. He against 450 prophets of Baal. And as he's trying to prove who is the true and real and living God, Jehovah, it's him against them. And what he does is he builds an altar and then he puts a sacrifice on that altar and then he drenches all of it, all the wood in water. And then he comes back and he drenches all of it again. And then he comes back and he drenches it all again. And then he prays. How many of you remember what happened? Fire came from heaven, consumed the water and the sacrifice. The true God was identified. Immediately after that, Queen Jezebel decides that because 
wicked Queen Jezebel, because of what he had done, she's going to hunt him down and she's going to have him killed. And so Elijah flees into the wilderness and guess where he sits down? Under a broom tree. And he prays for God to take his life. In the book of Genesis, a young mother named Hagar was sent into the wilderness by her mistress Sarah. With little to sustain her and her son Ishmael, she wandered until her food and water ran out. And then she placed her son under a bush like the broom tree and walked to where she could not see him die. And she sat down and she wept and she cried out to God and waited for death to come. The broom tree is associated with suffering and distress and agony, but it's also associated with hope. Because it was under the broom tree in great trouble that God sent great hope. And I want you to think about this for your own life for a moment. If you find yourself figuratively living under a broom tree in great despair, in great distress, I want you to know that it is at that moment that God can send the greatest hope. So if you're sitting there and you feel pain and you feel turmoil, Maybe in your heart, you're questioning God's wisdom. You're confused by God's actions. You're wondering if your pain has any purpose. You're wondering if your turmoil will have a reason. You're trying to figure out, are there meaning to my circumstances? Is there any direction that will steer me out of my confusion? Is there any place to find peace for my unrest? I want you to know that God's great hope is often found when we are in the middle of the darkest times or the greatest pain. See, we forget. We think Christmas is this wonderful time of year. We got candles. and I mean, many of us probably think there was an Advent wreath in Jesus's house, you know? And we think everything was peaceful. Actually, it was a time of great oppression and tyranny. You know, we think of the family getting ready to accept Jesus and how excited they are. And we forget that it was a time of confusion and great distress for Joseph and Mary. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We want to look at a very familiar passage, one we've talked about before, but we always need to revisit that speaks to the birth of Jesus Christ. It's talking to us about the arrival of hope. And that's really what we all long for in the midst of the chaos of this world. We long for hope. We long for the expectation of a preferable future. In these verses, two things are happening. First, God is entering into our world. The advent of Jesus means that God is coming to solve the biggest problem ever, the sin that exists in the world. And it's going to call for the most costly solution ever the sacrifice of His Son. So we have hope arriving from God in the mess of sin. But second, we have Joseph. He's facing the biggest problem of his young life. His wife is pregnant and not by him. And she's got this crazy story. It appears to him she's been unfaithful. And he can't see a way out of his distress. And these two stories converge where God enters in specifically 
to the pain that all of us feel with sin in the advent of Christ and specifically to Joseph in his turmoil with the advent of Christ. God's great hope is often found when we are in the middle of the darkest times or in the middle of the greatest pain. So if you are there this morning, I invite you to look for hope this morning. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, I'd like to read our passage out loud. And then we will walk through these verses together and take the insights that we can to apply to our lives. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen? You may be seated. So I hope as we read through that, you found hope. I hope you could see the hope. I long for all of us to experience hope. Hope is what contradicts worldly despair. Hope is what moves us from a focus on our pain and our turmoil to a focus on God and His grace. Hope helps us to reinterpret our circumstances. Hope helps us to reorient our perspective. You and I don't need a humanly manufactured hope. We need a God-founded hope. A hope that changes our outlook. A hope that breathes courage in our lives to face that which is unfair and difficult. A hope that redirects. A supernatural hope that moves us from painful turmoil to faithful obedience. And this is our main idea this morning. I want you to grab hold of this, that God's hope is greater than any trouble. God's hope is bigger than any problem you are facing. God's hope is bigger than any trouble, any set of circumstances that you are facing. And I want you to also know that God's will, that He's going to carry out, will not be stopped by any obstacle, any difficulty, or any problem. Take a look at our passage and look at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Now, we, we don't use the word betrothed. So you, you, you probably haven't heard anybody say, Oh, did you hear about so-and-so's betrothal this week? 
You know, we, we use the word engagement, but our engagement is different than the betrothal that would take place among Jewish people. When a, a, a woman and a man around 13 years old, sometimes as early as 12, sometimes as late as 14, a marriage would be arranged and they would be betrothed. And, and when they were betrothed, that was a legally binding prenuptial contract that they were married. It could only be broken by a formal acquiring of a divorce. The betrothal period ended with the wedding celebration and the husband taking the woman to his house and they coming together as man and wife. Typically, the period between the wedding celebration and the betrothal was one year. So in this situation, it's become very clear that they were in this period before they came together, before the wedding celebration, before she had gone home to be with Joseph. Joseph and Mary are in that one year waiting period. Together, it says before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before he took her to live with him, she was found to be with child. Now, can you imagine how awkward this would be for two 13 or 14-year-old teenagers? You know, we know from the historical tracks of the other Gospels that she had gone to see um, a relative, Elizabeth, and she'd come home. And so how do you think she was found to be with child? I doubt she was walking around telling everybody as a betrothed woman who had not yet consummated her marriage with her husband that she was pregnant. She was beginning to show. And when I think about Joseph and how this must have felt to him, I mean, he knows he's not the father. So three words, unforeseen. I mean, I can't imagine, I can imagine what Joseph was thinking when Mary went to visit her relative. I'm so excited about my carpentry visit. I'm so excited about my new marriage. I'm so excited to have a family with Mary. My whole, the whole world's in front of me and it all seems bright. It all seems great. And she comes home and she's pregnant. Unescapable, mystifying. Those are the other two words unexplainable, this mystifying, wait, 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 let me get this right, Mary. You went away, you come back pregnant, and the Holy Spirit did it. And I'm a man of faith, but if my daughter told me the Holy Spirit got her pregnant, I'd have a few questions. It's mystifying. It doesn't make sense. And what's Joseph going to do about it? I mean, if he gets married to her, then everybody's going to think he got her pregnant. That he didn't follow God's commands of purity. And if he divorces her, puts her to shame, then she could actually lose her life and be stoned as an adulteress. So Joseph finds himself in this unforeseen, mystifying, unescapable dilemma. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man 
and loving man because he's unwilling to put her to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. He loves God. He's been following God's truth. He loves Mary. He wants to do what's right by her. But there's only one answer he can come up with, divorce. Only answer to this dilemma from his human perspective is he needs to quietly divorce Mary. The law would allow for a quiet divorce to take place as long as there were two witnesses. So they could go to Bethlehem. They could take the census. He could leave her behind. She could have the baby. She could give it up for adoption. And then she could choose whether or not she would come home. But he would divorce her quietly. He felt this would be compassionate, but the only way forward. Have you ever been there? Where you're facing something unwanted or facing something that won't happen? Maybe it's financial pressures, it's loneliness, it's family turmoil, it's a relationship on the edge, it's the loss of a job or a career, it's a child in trouble. You're wondering, how am I going to make it through the next day? Maybe you are like Joseph, considering options that won't take away the ache in your heart, but seem to be the only options that are available to you. There's no way to get out of the mounting pressure there's no way to move out from under what was unforeseen. You felt like you're caught up in something that's a mystery and you're facing something that's inescapable. If you're there this morning, I want you to know you are not alone. If you look around you, half the people in this room feel like that. And I know for sure Joseph did. God's hope can give us the strength and courage we don't have to deal with the pain we don't want. I want you to believe that with all of your heart, that God's hope is so great that it can breathe strength and courage into your life that you don't currently have to help you deal with the pain you didn't ever want to come. Look at verses 19 and 20. We're going to see three things in these verses that, that we, well, 19 and 20, we're going to see one thing, but we're going to see in the following verses three things. We want, I want you to see that Joseph is considering divorce. That means he's mulling it over, he's weighed all of his options, he's reflected on it, and the only thing that he can come up with is that the best human solution is that he should divorce his wife. Then I want you to notice that when he's come up with his best answer, God gives him direction. He gives him instructions. That's the first thing he gives to Joseph, instructions. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Go ahead. Finish the betrothal, get married, take her as your wife. Don't be afraid. Why? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, I can just imagine Joseph, at the moment he hears this going, holy Jerusalem, it's true. 
I mean, come on. How many dads in this room would buy the Holy Spirit thing? Even if you were looking for the second return of Christ. Now, we know He's coming riding on the clouds. Man, what great truth. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he also gets perspective. He's moved from a human vantage point of his own solution to a supernatural vantage point of the power of the Holy Spirit and the plan of God. Jesus, God saves. Why is this son coming into the world? To save people from their sin. He's to be courageous and take Mary as his wife. He's to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. You know, sometimes we forget that. We are living in the middle of a world that the Bible describes as a battlefield. And we forget that the object of the wrath of the enemy of God is the people of God. And sometimes we lose perspective. But not only is there instruction, not only is there perspective, there's a promise. I want you to notice that here we have that this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken about the prophet. Behold, this is Isaiah 7:14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so what is happening here? is not just painful turmoil, but the outworking of God's plan. This isn't haphazard. This is purposeful. This isn't some eccentric thought of some ancient prophet. No, this is God's plan to deal with the sin of His people. But I want you to notice, not only was it Jesus, God says, it's Emmanuel, God with us. I want you to see one is a name, one is a title. Both of them speaking to different aspects. God saves, speaks to the work he will do that will take care of the problem of our sin. Emmanuel speaks to God's presence with us in the midst of the mess of our sin. Don't we need both? We don't just need salvation and forgiveness. We need God's presence. We need his assistance, his perspective, and his help. And so this promise of Isaiah 7:14 becomes more than an announcement to the world. It becomes a promise of God's presence in the midst of Joseph's turmoil. Now, there's one thing that's unspoken in the text, and I, I never want to make great arguments for something by something that's not there. But all of the questions aren't answered that Joseph might have. Like the one we all ask, why is this happening to me? Not all the answers are there. But the guidance, the promises, the instructions, the presence, all are. You know, we don't get 
visits by angels very regularly here. They didn't get visits by angels regularly in the ancient world. The normal way in which God intervenes into our world is through His Word that the Holy Spirit uses to change our perspective, to give us instructions, to follow, and promises to hold on to. God's hope is greater than any trouble, and His will cannot be stopped by any obstacle. His Word tells us this over and over and over through instructions and perspective and promises that assist us in the midst of our journey. God's hope is greater than any trouble, any problem, any difficulty, any dilemma you find yourself in. God's will, His perfect His perfect will, His sovereign will cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped by any obstacle. So knowing this, look what Joseph does. His life isn't all of a sudden better. His perspective has changed. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. You know, from these two verses, I I see three ways that you and I can put hope into action in our lives. Because let's face it, if you walk out of here and you don't grab hold of hope, you're in trouble. So here's the first thing. One is reorient your perspective to God's perspective. So often when we are in pain, when we are in turmoil, when we are in trouble, we create, we draft for ourselves a narrative of what's really going on, and we also interpret it probably way more negatively than it actually is. And I'm not saying it's not really, really bad, but we can pile on negativity. Can I have an amen out there? And then what we do is we begin to reinterpret everything that's happening by our interpretation of what is happening. Joseph chooses to move from his human vantage point of how he has created the narrative of what needs to happen to God's divine viewpoint. And he adopts God's perspective. So I I just want to ask, where are you in seeking God's perspective of this world and your life? Do you go to His Word daily, thirsty for direction, for perspective, for promises? Are you willing to reorient from your narrative to His? Second, will you embrace God's promises? I mean, that's what Joseph did. He embraced the promises. He hung his hat on the truth that God said he did not need to fear marrying Mary. That he should name his child Jesus. And this will just be the beginning of all kinds of other promises God will give to him about this son and about his life. So what promise are you hanging on to this morning? If you opened up my journal, you would find this week there were some promises I was hanging on. 
Almost every week, I'm finding two or three places in the Word where God is commanding me, where God is giving me a promise, where God is exhorting me to action, where God is comforting my soul with words of truth. Is that your weekly, daily experience? It should be. We serve a living God who wants to enter into your life in that way. And then third, we need to obey God's directions. Joseph obeyed. He not only reoriented to the perspective, he not only embraced the promise, he did what God commanded. Are you still trying to make your way? You look at God's way and you go, ah, you know, I know what God says about finances. I know what God says about marriage. I know what God says, but here's, this is the way I think I should do it. Are you doing it God's way? See, I really believe God's hope is greater than any trouble. God's perfect and sovereign will cannot be stopped or thwarted. So today, reorient to God's perspective. Find a promise to claim. Find a command to obey. Find an example to follow. And then live in light of the hope that God gives. Joseph reoriented to God's perspective. He embraced God's promises and he walked in faith and obedience. And so must we. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for all the ways that we try to get you to redo the world to fit our narrative. God, forgive us for all the ways that we have chosen to walk apart from the truth you've already revealed in your word. Forgive us for the way that we often choose to walk by our own human strength instead of rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to trust you and believe in your hope that's bigger than any problem and your will, which is stronger than any obstacle. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.